Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Let's get Brexit done. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. I'm Royfield Brown, who's in a wonderfully hot, sticky Bay Area in California. Today we're joined by Paul Dudridge, John Goodison, Duke View, and by Emma Burnell. In a week that has seen America recapture its place as the vanguard of freedom because of uh, the performance of President Biden in the G7 summit. We ask, did Biden conquer Europe? How has Boris Johnson done? And what does the Austin Bibi Netanyahu mean for Middle East politics? The only way we're going to meet uh, the global threats that we're, is by working together and uh, with our partners and our allies. And I conveyed to each of the, my uh, G7 counterparts that the United States is going to do our part. America is back at the table. America is back at the table. I think we're in a contest, not with China per se, but a contest with autocrats, autocratic governments around the world, as whether or not democracies can compete with them in the rapidly changing 21st century. And I think how we act and whether we pull together as democracies is going to uh, determine whether our grandkids look back 15 years from now and say, did they step up? Our democracy is as relevant and as powerful as they have been. And I walked away from the meeting with all my colleagues believing that they are convinced that that is correct now too. Not, I shouldn't say now, not just because of me, but they believe that to be the case. I propose that we have a, a democratic alternative to... Uh, the Belt and Road Initiative to build back better. Uh, and uh, they've agreed to that, and that's underway as the details of that. We agreed that we put together a committee to do that and come up with that. And thirdly, uh, that uh, we are going to assist on uh, uh, high standards uh, for, to be for a climate-friendly, transparent alternative uh, to 
to the Belt and Road Initiative. And, uh, but in the meantime, we're going to move forward. Joe Biden traveled to Cornwall in the UK for a meeting of the G7. It was his first overseas trip as president of the United States. He seems to have done well, if we're to believe the mainstream establishment. John Goodison, did President Biden do a good job reassuring the world that America is back and open for bilateral international business? So I think that there were really sort of three stages to this trip. There's the G7 component, which was mostly in Cornwall, but it did cross over a bit in Brussels as well. Then there's the NATO element, which was all in Brussels. And then there was the meeting in Geneva with President Vladimir Putin, Russia. So three separate pieces here, a little bit of crossover between the NATO meetings and the G7 meetings. There were some meetings with EU figures that were not related to NATO, but did occur in Brussels. And perhaps we could associate sort of with the G7 component of the trip. The G7, I think, is where we saw the biggest number of real takeaways, real uh, new initiatives that were announced, policy deliverables and shifts in, in U.S. policy. And I think uh, development of closer transatlantic ties, more cooperation, more alignment on a lot of key issues involving trade, involving technology. I think with NATO, we saw a little bit less. And then meeting in Geneva with Putin, we probably saw the least in the amount of, of real deliverables and real sort of policy momentum. So I think that if we look at it in these three separate pieces, we can pick out a lot of important things that occurred. And we can also find areas where they're still is disagreement between the United States and the other parties. Um, Emma, very obviously, this summit um, took place on British soil. How did our Prime Minister do? That's all right. I mean, he didn't fall on his face. He did manage to take a plane to Cornwall to talk about climate change, which was a bit dark, and then tweet a photo of him doing it, which was even darker. I mean, I was just disappointed in the whole thing, really. It was, it was your classic... All, all, what's it? All fur coat and no knickers. You know, lots of show, lots of people going, look, the world is back. Bonnie me. It's all great. We all love each other again. And then an absolute underperformance in terms of international vaccine, which has got to be the number one issue. Very, very little in terms of progress on climate. So it was just like, well, isn't it nice that everything's back to normal? Well, no, actually. You know, do I prefer normal to Trump? Yes, of course. But actually, normal was still going too slowly and often in the wrong direction. So it just felt very underwhelming. Paul, one of the backdrops to this summit were tensions between Britain and the EU over Northern Ireland. Did Boris Johnson ending this kind of summit by saying, I'm going to defend the integrity of the United Kingdom? Does that reassure us? Should he have said it? Should we have even foreseen? these issues to do with Northern Ireland and whether it is an integral part of the United Kingdom because of the mess that was Brexit? Well, since when was Brexit a mess, by the way? What, what, what's that about? Uh, that was me leading you, sir. Uh, feel free to refute me and say that Brexit was all a smooth debate that Britain had for some three years and none of the issues that have bedeviled Northern Ireland and trade are because of us not being in the single market. You can tell me I'm completely wrong. Well, no, I mean, Brexit is really easy. It's just a bureaucratic, just a, uh, a, a stroke of the pen. The problems we've had have been people using every nefarious democratically elected politicians in the UK up until the general election, using what power they had to try and subvert 
the democratic will of the people. So, I mean, any any uh, the only reason we're in the Northern Ireland problem, for instance, is because it was a promise made by Theresa May, who basically wanted to keep us in the customs union and the single market, which is just another form of staying in the EU. So Brexit itself is very easy. It's just, you know, it's, it's just either joining a, a trade group or it's leaving one. What, what I think was interesting with the... Uh, what I think was interesting with this G7, and I was pretty impressed with Boris, actually, because if you think the very first sort of news stories coming out of the UK were Biden was basically slapping down Britain about the Northern Ireland situation and, you know, Biden being, you know, very sort of patriotic descendant of Ireland and, you know, calling himself an Irishman and all that kind of stuff. That was then refuted pretty quickly within 24 hours by the Biden camp and almost never a peep about it. So there was a, you know, there was an initial, there was an initial volley of uh, bullets about uh, unfortunate use of words, but there was, there was an initial kind of controversy about Biden's take on Britain and Brussels treatment of Northern Ireland. And then that was dissipated almost immediately. And I, I think, I don't agree that Biden had a terrible G7, but I think others did better than he did. I think it was basically UK and EU came out of it better than than Biden did. I think that he was, I think he was shown to have his hands tied, if you like. He, he can't make any grand gestures seemingly in the G7. And I think that then was, that was echoed as he went on to deal with Putin. I think it's actually been a very bad foreign adventure for Biden recently. And I think that that's echoed with even CNN turning on him and his administration. I think that People have really seen that there's not much, there's a shell there, basically. Duke, has Biden had a bad week abroad? Uh, the president had to achieve a couple of major goals. Number one, he had to reassure the European allies that America is back and open for, for business. He also needed to rally them against the threat of China. And, and then I suppose the third thing was to put some red lines between the West and Putin. Did he achieve those, those three goals uh, for you? It's impossible to tell this point. So there's definitely a lot of work to be done convincing allies America was back. Uh, he said America was back at every single stop that he made and every public comment that he made. And whether that is true or not is a question that I'm sure our allies are wondering. You know, the last four years has probably shaken the faith of a lot, a lot of our allies of strength of you know, the American democracy and whether this four-year term of Biden is a, a blip or is it a return to normal. So, you know, when it comes to, you know, foreign affairs and allyship, it's long-term that matters most. So maybe it's a good sign. Gathering everyone against a common cause of China, you know, that that's a hard play and a hard sell. You know, it, many people will see them as a viable economic partner. And while some will be reluctant to say something against them out loud. So that's one of those things that, you know, we can maybe see and some of our allies agreeing with us and maybe not as far as establishing red lines with Vladimir Putin. We don't know that that's something that John touched on that, like we know the least amount of what came out of there, like what deliverables actually happened. I don't know if we actually saw any, establishment of like long-term connections between Vladimir Putin and our president Joe Biden. So the reality is, is that it, it was a success in my mind just because it 
we've set a diplomat to do diplomatic work and that's something we haven't had in a long time so you know i'm not gonna complain <laughs> whether like everything was done in one fell swoop because it just can't be the trust has to be rebuilt john it was biden the the right diplomat for this situation because there were the odd fluff and blunder at one point it was he mentioned libya when he, he meant syria and also he did call vladimir putin a killer was he the diplomat that was needed for this moment or because we've had trump for the last four years are we overly forgiving an elderly man uh making slips of the tongue well i'm not sure if his age is is too enormous of a factor if we're looking at the g7 leaders for example Mario Draghi, who has only recently become the Prime Minister of Italy, is the son of a man who was born in the year 1895. Joe Biden's age is not particularly unusual among world leaders. We saw Mahathir become the uh, leader of Malaysia at age 94. We had Robert Mugabe, who was 94 years old recently. There's nothing very unusual about his age. If there was a meeting in the United States between Nancy Pelosi, Mitch McConnell, Joe Biden, and Tony Fauci, Biden would be the youngest person in the room. But this But doesn't this tell us something about the gerontocracy of America, though, because you've got Justin Trudeau, who looks all young and youthful and healthy. Look at Macron. He's a relatively uh, young guy. Boris Johnson might be somewhat overweight and uh, out of shape. But, you know, he's only in his mid 50s. Doesn't this tell us something about America and, and, and its leaders that they're all so old? Trudeau and Macron are the outliers. You know, if you look at more traditional French leadership, Jacques Chirac, certainly we're looking at elderly people there as well. And Merkel, who's been in office now for 16 years, is certainly not new to the scene. But sort of to answer your question more directly, whether Biden is the right man for the moment, I think that it's certainly true that Biden is the leader that European allies were hoping would emerge from the US political process. I think that there was a lot of discomfort, obviously with Donald Trump for reasons that are quite obvious. But in the Democratic primary in the United States elections, among a very large field of contenders, Biden was, it was said, in Europe, the hope. It, it, one of his major contenders was a gentleman who was even older, Senator Bernard Sanders of Vermont. And European partners were not comfortable with the idea that Sanders might emerge as the candidate of the primary. His views on trade, which are quite protectionist, his views on NATO and the security umbrella, which seemed to be at least ambivalent, were not the ones that European leaders want in a partner. They, they know Biden. Biden has been a member of U.S. politics at the highest level for 50 years now, being elected at age 29. He served for eight years as vice president. He's a known personality in Europe. He's rather predictable, and he takes a quite patient, slow and steady approach to diplomacy with a broad degree of alignment on trade and security issues that make Europe quite comfortable. And we're seeing some of those deliverables already. For example, the settlement of the longstanding Airbus-Boeing trade dispute. Duke was talking about long-term. Well, here's a dispute that had been going on for 17 years, and it appears as though it's finally come to an end. This is a result that we probably wouldn't have seen if Donald Trump were still in office, or if one of the contenders against Biden in the Democratic primary, someone like Sanders, had emerged as the candidate. Emma, you answered your first question by saying, at least you, you seem to feel like you were kind of poo-pooing the whole kind of edifice of, of the G7. Am I wrong in, in that assumption? And if I 
And if I am right that you're kind of poo-pooing it, what should we put in its place? Well, the truth is G7 is an incre- uh, decreasingly important group of people and because, as has been clear in this discussion, if China ain't in the room, it doesn't really make an awful lot of difference what they all agree. China was in the room. They were Banquo's ghost at that thing. Every single decision that was made was made with China in mind either to try and slow China's expansionist outreach policies or to make sure that you wouldn't tread on their toes too much because you wanted to be a recipient of those expansionist outreach policies. Um, there are, There is very little point in just going, hey, we're the group of seven good guys with increasingly little importance. And you can tell yourself that all you like, but when it comes to the UN, Russia and China will still veto anything that you want to do. And if you therefore can't even be the seven good guys to get together and vaccinate the world, then what the hell is the point? Paul, what, what is the point? I think that there still is a point, if just not to be a counterpoint to China. But Paul, tell me, what is the point of, of the G7? Uh, listen, I'm, I'm, I don't think there is. I don't think there's a counterpoint to China in the G7 uh, whatsoever. I think the whole thing is just optics. I think the, you know, I'm going to sound like an awful tinfoil hat wearer, but like really there's very little change or movement that can happen from these, from these uh, organizations meeting, from these intergovernmental meetings. Because, but, but Paul, isn't it a good thing that we basically said to the tech giants that your tax havens are going to be targeted? Isn't it a good thing that we've pledged to phase out coal powered power station sorry um and that there is has been an undertaking to have a billion doses of covid vaccine sent around the world these are good things and it's great that we come with our come with our allies and coordinate these things surely i yeah i literally almost 100 percent disagree i mean look you know the the very fact you know the, the distribution of vaccines if we start at the other end we in a global pandemic that's created by exactly the same culture that then eventually says, oh, no, we've got the solution. It's like we wouldn't have this global pandemic if we didn't rely on these intergovernmental bodies, if we if we hadn't have believed China and the World Health Organization in the first place. So I always think it's a little bit disingenuous subsequently to kind of go, oh, look, the cavalry are coming. It's like, yeah, well, the cavalry set fire to your tents in the first place, you know, so. I'm I'm very mistrustful of the entire system, but as you're saying, I think the whole the, the the other two points, you know, whether there are allies or not, it's just all window dressing and optics. I don't want to sound too cynical, but this is not where the this is not where geopolitics or global economics happens. It it happens in the creation of the euro. It happens in the Federal Reserve. It doesn't happen by people that we, you know, giving us some semblance that we voted for these people and that they they dispense power. China is still, China's building less coal-fired power stations than we're led to believe, but they're still building them at an alarming rate. And we are tinkering at the edges for some northern hemispherical, generally white people photo op to think that we're actually making some kind of dent in climate change. I think the whole thing is largely optics. I can't see what can happen there that can't happen on a Zoom call. It, 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 I'm mistrustful of the whole pomp that goes with so-called leadership because there are only very few parameters with which 
within which global economies can actually function. And they're nothing to do with elected politicians. They are to do with, you know, the creation of the euro, the uh, oil being priced in dollars. And, you know, that's really what the underpinning of the world economy is. It's nothing to do with uh, whether a few bureaucrats decide on sending some vaccines. Duke, is this all optics? Do you think a Zoom call was all that was needed to reassure the world that the age of Trumpism is behind it? I can't help but think of an old advertising campaign in the United States by Sprite. And it was image is nothing, thirst is everything. And I, in my mind, I, I can't help but disagree that it does matter what the optics are. It does matter that there is some display of diplomacy because the people that are paying attention are making decisions based on that. Yes, by and large, decisions made in the private sector and what's going on in our economy, you know, can operate independently from what is going on in global negotiations. But if you don't believe that China and Russia are watching our moves, then you're sadly mistaken. And reality of the beast is that like there's reassurances that you know, constituents across the planet are looking to see, like looking at our leaders to see if they're going to have conversations, if they're going to work together. There's been a very divided time. So rebuilding trust in our institutions matter quite a bit. You know, we can be resentful and we can distrust everyone. We can look at a skeptical eye on everything, but we still live in a global stage that works on the nation state system. So regulations matter, trade agreements matter, and how we address, you know, the challenges of China's thirst for power and consumption of energy and everything else does in fact matter in some way or another. Like we're all interconnected deeply. Like globalism has happened to pretend that it hasn't is just burying your head in the sand. This is now the time where if you're in the audience and you would like to add your say, please raise your hand and we'll pull you up and you can have your say. But if you do come up, please be brief, though. John Goodenson, Joe Biden said the summit had been extraordinarily collaborative. That's a good thing, isn't it? So there you go. Uncle Joe is saying that good work was done in Cornwall. I think that I agree with some of what Paul said. I think some of Paul's observations are definitely correct, but I probably disagree with his central thesis. So Paul is absolutely right that there is a large degree of pomp and posturing and photo ops and even a degree of tourist promotion that's associated with these kinds of summits. But I, I don't think that he's correct that there is no substance whatsoever. For one thing, I think that we should clarify, Paul referenced bureaucrats. The people that met at the G7 this week are not bureaucrats. This was a principles meeting. These were elected political figures. They're not the bureaucrats. They are the politicians, the elected members of government, the heads of government in, in almost all cases. Paul is also right to say that the G7 is not necessarily a meeting of allies. However, at this time, coincidentally, it is. The G7 meets in good times and bad times. They met often during the Trump years annually. It's part of the process. And they tried to work together during those years, too. However, even before that, the G7, if we remember correctly, was previously the G8. It included Russia, a country which is not only a non-ally, but really something of an adversary for the parties that met this week. The, the G7 isn't naturally a group of allies, but today 
the parties that are included do happen to be allies. I would also question Paul's sort of delineation between a plurilateral summit like this and the occasions in which he suggested that the real decisions happen, because looking at his examples, I think those are also decisions that happen in a plurilateral environment, correct? Paul mentioned the establishment of the euro. Well, that was a process that included input of all the member states of the eurozone. And some countries decided not to join the eurozone. Only about half the countries in the European Union are part of it. It was a political process. It was a plurilateral process. Paul also mentioned the price setting of petroleum. As we know, these decisions are also made in a plurilateral summit environment as well. We're looking at the OPEC cartel, which has a large degree of control over petroleum prices globally. This is also a summit just like the G7, where the principals from members of the OPEC organization are meeting together to make decisions just like the ones that were made this week in a similar environment. So if we look at the COVAX initiative, if we look at the infrastructure initiative, the taxation deal that was made, the, this new technology cooperation council, the new trade deal that was announced between the UK and Australia, the settlement of the Airbus Boeing trade dispute that we mentioned, there are a lot of substantive things that happen. It's not everything. And there are still differences between these parties. The steel and aluminum tariff war is still going on. Even the parties that met this week still have a lot of disagreement. But there is substance that's happening. And there's substantive decisions that are happening in plurilateral environments like this all over the world every year. John, that's a tour de force, mate. Props to you for that. Paul, write a reply before we move on, because um, he, he addressed you quite often. Yeah, no, no. And I'm, I'm beyond flattered. I, honestly, most people never even pay any attention. But I, uh, I choose the word bureaucrat deliberately because these are not the decisions ultimately not resting with me. You look at that G7. I think three was it. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think it's Germany, Italy and France are in there. Right. For instance, am I right about Italy being in there? He was. Yep. Draghi yeah. Was there. Yeah. Right. So you've got three countries that are bound by EU regulations anyway. To suggest that these are this is some sort of international nation state discussion between seven sovereign nations is nonsense. You even have the European Union represented there. So, you know, G7 plus the European Union, half of them are already under an umbrella set of agreements as far as the euro goes. Many countries weren't even asked whether they wanted to join the euro. They, they, it was simply imposed on them. And then when countries like Ireland actually did have a referendum, they got the wrong answer and started and had to be asked again whether they wanted to ratify Maastricht, etc. So it, it, it is a creeping... I like a nation-state. I would love it if we could all come together in genuine nation-state meetings, but we don't. Like I said, if you take that G7, three of them are already part of a supranational body that controls their... They literally have the same currency and they literally have the same immigration policies. To suggest somehow that they have some latitude is farcical. And as far as, you know, we have these intergovernmental agreements, no, we don't. When, when, when OPEC decided to peg the price of oil in the dollar... That was simply that was simply the United States working on behalf of the Federal Reserve, imposing its will on Saudi Arabia as the most powerful member of OPEC at that time. And I think that's probably still the case. I'm just saying it's just like the idea that anything is happening is window dressing. The two little people that come out on a clock and, you know, bang the hour every time on a little Swiss clock, they're not making time. They're just measuring it. These people are not the actual 
organ grinders. They are the monkeys, basically. And the, the, the major, I, I'll, stand, I'll stand by it, is the Federal Reserve and the, uh, the euro at this point, and China, obviously. And Russia's irrelevant. Russia's economy is the size of Italy, for goodness sake. The idea that they're even any kind of threat to anything is, is again, farcical. But anyway, yeah, that I'll, I'll bore on about this all day. Well, at least everyone got to meet the Queen. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. If for no other reason than that, it was worthwhile. Tonight, the face of Israel's fragile new government. Politicians from the left, right and center, led by the new prime minister, right-wing nationalist Naftali Bennett, pledging to repair ties with America's Democratic Party. The foreign minister today describing them as angry. Israel's new government sworn in on Sunday after an unruly vote. Several lawmakers were thrown out for heckling. Benjamin Netanyahu sat stone-faced as the coalition celebrated. Today, the former prime minister vowing again to bring down what he calls a dangerous government, saying he's the only one who can protect Israel from Iran and stand up to the U.S. president. Prime Minister Bennett says he too strongly opposes rejoining the Iran nuclear deal. He's against the two-state solution and four Israeli settlements. It doesn't only matter what are Bennett's views, but it, what matters probably more is what will be the, his government's views. And there he will have to make a lot of compromises. Let's move on. We have a new Israeli government. Israel's new government is led by a one Mr. Bennett. They will hold their first cabinet meeting on June the 20th. Benjamin Netanyahu has lost his 12-year hold on power in Israel after parliament voted in a new coalition government. How will this move change Israeli politics or more to the point the fate of the Palestinians or have we tired of the whole region? Duke, over to you, sir. Should we be concerned, interested, bothered about this shift in Israeli internal politics? I think we should be hopeful that democratic process actually worked. We're looking at a situation where many people 
you know, were not supportive Netanyahu, and they formed a coalition and voted him out. It remains to be seen what happens going forward. We still have a lot of, you know, cases against him as far as corruption. And so those will drag through the courts for the next couple of years, and we'll see what happens under Bennett's two years in the rotation. I think we should be greatly optimistic about the direction going forward, just because, you know, this is a will of the people situation. While his supporters are strong and there's quite a number of them, the change was deemed necessary from the outside world, but also from within. So, you know, we, we should be pretty excited about the developments, but also have a watchful eye on what happens over the next couple of years with his remaining in power in some way. The concern is like, can he come back? That's something that like they have to be careful about. Emma, I'm fervent in my belief that the Palestinians deserve their own state. And we have an Israeli government now, which is going to have two small Arabic parties that are going to be part of that government. Um, Israeli Arabic party is going to be part of that government. Does, has the, the, aspiration for a Palestinian homeland? Has that moved one or two degrees towards a reality because of this new coalition government? I think that's almost impossible to say now. It's such a bizarre mishmash of incredibly Israeli nationalist parties, not least the one led by, by, by Bennett himself, which is on, you know, extremely right wing and left and centrist parties and um, even an Arab, specifically Arab Israeli party. How long this coalition can last, therefore, is a very live question. Uh, What they have in common is not liking Netanyahu. If Netanyahu goes to jail, he's kind of taken out of the equation. What then holds them together? If Netanyahu is simply neutralised as a threat, politically and just goes off and, and isn't that important anymore, what holds them together. Um, the deal that's been made, as I understand it, is that Bennett will be the leader for a couple of years and then the more centrist leader will take over. I don't know what that centrist was putting in his tea, but the idea that you know this could last long enough for him to get a go seems extraordinarily optimistic to me. I, we've already seen action between Palestinians and Israel, um, with the Palestinians dropping incendiary bombs on Israeli farmland and Israel responding with rockets into Gaza. I, what I would like is they're there with this coalition, because what Netanyahu always did was absolutely ramp up tensions uh, between Israel and Palestine around election time. And sadly, it's a cynical ploy, but it works very well. What I would like to see is less of that, and that may be something that happens. We may or may not see that, but what we are going to see is, is continued political instability because this coalition is, is inherently unstable. Uh, John, I think Emma brings up a truth for the new government that they actually need Netanyahu, don't they? It's because of the, you know, he's dominated the political scene for so long, the inherent corruption, you know, he's on trial at the moment as well. These are all just two or three of the reasons why the whole 
of the Israeli political establishment has just got tired of the man. And hence, we've had this wide-ranging coalition from the left of the Israeli political spectrum to the hard right. But they actually need him, don't they? They actually need him still to be a central figure in Israeli politics from the opposition benches to keep this coalition government alive. That's the inherent contradiction of it. So should we have any confidence that it's actually going to last? Yes, I think that that's probably correct. I think that I agree with Emma. I should clarify before I comment further that although I do have quite extensive experience in the Middle East, living there for about eight years, my experience is entirely in the Arab world. I've never been to Israel. I've seen the Israeli territory from across the Ed Sea in Jordan, but I am looking at this issue sort of from an outsider perspective. But I think what's really remarkable and what stands out the most about this entire process is how difficult it was uh, to remove Netanyahu from prime ministership. We are looking at an entire cross-election of parties and personalities moving heaven and earth to remove this man from power. We saw four elections in only two years. This would make even the UK blush in the number of elections that are occurring in a short period of time. And um, we're seeing, just as Emma identified, a very strange combination of parties across the political spectrum. It's cobbled together from a number of parties that have a very small number of actual seats, but put together can make a majority that can win at least a confidence vote, a vote which they won by only one vote. Uh, For example, the Labour Party, left-leaning party, is part of the coalition, but so is the Yamina bloc, which is Neftali Bennett's group, which is considered even more aggressive on the issue of the West Bank than Netanyahu was. And then we're seeing a sort of right-wing, socially conservative, Islamist-oriented Arabic party, the Ra'am party, that is sitting together with Ed Fellow on the right, albeit one that sees the Palestinian issue very differently, and then left-wing parties, which have very little in common on social policy. So it is a very strange combination. It took four elections, it took this coalition, and they still only won by one vote. I think that the observation is probably right that what's holding this group together is the opposition to Netanyahu. They will have to have a very modest set of policy agenda if they're going to hope to achieve anything while in power. Paul, aren't we all just getting a little bit fed up of the Middle East? We see the Arab-Israeli or the Palestinian-Israeli conflicts have been intractable. I think the American government is slowly but surely washing its hands of it. It's a case of let them get on with it. Even the Arab world is somewhat given up with being stalwart behind the Palestinians. This is the 1960s and 70s and 80s problem, isn't it? And it's 2021 and uh, we've got better things to do with our time geopolitically well it's like you're always saying roy field it's about time we just invaded and showed them how to run the place but (laughs) it's uh i mean not on these channels you wouldn't say that but i've read a lot of i get your letters still no i no i don't think so i think it's going to grumble on forever and i think it's uh you know again i think until we completely have oil out of our economy that's going to be the case i'll tell you the only the only the only uh, point I've got that can vary what's already been said by people much smarter than I is the uh, it's if Biden's talking about re-entering the Iran deal, and I'm not sure if anybody's brought this up, but this coalition will not last. That's an, exactly that point. There's only one. They've only got one majority, I think, 
And when when Biden makes noises about re-entering the the Iran deal, that coalition will collapse. And so I think it it has to it has to end then because you know that the, there are so many fringe groups that are you know absolutely diametrically opposed to that Iran nuclear deal. So that's when I think it'll go, and I think that will be sooner rather than later, frankly. Okay, uh, we have on stage we have Bluetooth beautiful flower and we have Arjun Sinha. So beautiful flower, what is your point? Hi everyone, thank you for bringing me up on stage. Ah, uh, Paul, that was funny. So when you say we to invade, who are you referring to? Because I know you're from uh, the UK and you live in America. Uh, he, he was he was jokingly referring to me saying that I'm some incredible warmonger and I believe that uh, the solutions <laughs> of every problem can be you know solved by an invasion. I don't know where he got that from, but it was highly amusing. But anyway, go on, make no, your no, wider I mean, point. Make it, it yeah, make your wider point. I took it as a joke, actually. I was just playing with him. For me personally, I do agree with you that I think it's a weak coalition, really. And I do. Th- I know that uh, Netanyahu will be doing all he can to make sure, you know. So I really don't know. Maybe they will pass a bill of some sort to buy him from ever running for office again. I really don't know how they will take it. I am not. Too, I'm not a big fan of Bennett and his, you know, coalition. But it remains to be seen, actually, what will happen. And of course, we know how um, Bennett stand on West Bank, Gaza, and all that. So I won't be surprised if it comes in, you know, hard banging and all. But well, that's just all I have for Israel, really. But surely, just the the ousting as you know, who just shows just shows us all just how utterly fed up the whole spectrum is of Israeli politics was with Netanyahu and, and the and the way that he's just conducted himself and uh, Israel really over the what last uh, 20 years on and off when he's been in and out of power. Ajahn, what is your say? So you're going to be the last person who's going to speak on this topic because then we're going to go to any other business. Sure. I have two quick questions to the panel. I'd love to hear all your opinions. But my two quick questions, because of the fact that it is a razor-thin majority in the Knesset right now, and because of the fact that Netanyahu has such a large or relatively large at least constituent base and has been such a domineering figure in Israeli politics for the past decade, do you think or does anyone see him coming back in the next five to seven years as a prime minister? And second to that, just to add on to it, keeping in mind the recent hostilities in Israel and Gaza, do you see the spirit of the Abraham Accords practically being dead? Uh, John, do you want to take up the ball with that first? Sure. Yeah, I'd like to address both. I think those are both great questions and, and excellent topics to raise. I think in response to your first question about whether it's possible that Benjamin Netanyahu will come back to power, I think that that is probably the fear that is keeping the principles in this coalition deal awake at night. I'm not in a position to speculate in how long the trial and uh, legal process will take in regard to his corruption uh, indictments, so to speak. I've heard from others that it could be about two or three years before we see a resolution to that. So right there, that's a large amount of time before there's a verdict in those cases in which Netanyahu is still a free citizen and is still the leader of the largest bloc in the Knesset, including any members of the governing coalition. And uh, it is conceivable that he could come back to power at any point. Looking at how many elections there's been in the last two years, it seems very plausible that there could be another one. However, just like Royfield said earlier, 
it could be in fact that this Netanyahu boogeyman is what keeps the coalition glued together. And if Netanyahu is there sort of as a uh, Bet Noir guiding uh, the members of the coalition to oppose him, that could be in fact the best thing for the stability of this new government. In regards to the Abraham Accords, I think that these really are quite separate issues. I, you know, I lived for a long time in a country that is sort of the protagonist of the Abraham Accords initiative, which is the UAE. And I think that none of the four countries that were involved in the Abraham Accords are ones which currently have a very strong interest or commitment to the Middle East peace issue. I think that the Abraham Accords were an effort really to sort of put the Palestinian issue to the side and focus on other topics in which the Israeli government is quite closely aligned, especially with the UAE, and to a lesser extent with the other four countries which normalize relations. I think that very often the Abraham Accords are sort of incorrectly characterized as being a peace deal. I think that that's not really correct. I think that the four countries that are involved in the Abraham Accords are not countries which were in a state of war with the Israelis, which are very tied up in the Palestinian issue. And I think that um, the cooperation between those four, in particular the UAE, well, will carry on relatively unencumbered. There are other reasons why aspects of the Abraham Accords might come into question. For example, sort of in, in exchange for normalizing ties with the Israelis, the UAE was promised from the U.S. that it could be sold F-35 airplane military technology. And this is coming into a question recently because of concerns over the UAE's partnership with the Chinese company Huawei. So this is the sort of thing that is possibly causing a wrinkle in sort of associated agreements around the Abraham Accords, but it's not a Palestinian issue. I can give you a couple other quick examples. Morocco was one of the countries that normalized ties with the Israelis. They are not particularly involved in the Palestinian issue. What they received in exchange was that the U.S. recognized their sovereignty over what is called Western Sahara, which is contested by a group called the Sawaris. Members of the U.S. government were very committed to uh, the Sawari claim, but have reversed that in exchange for Morocco. I don't see how this is tied to the Palestinian issue. Sudan, they normalized ties with Israel, partly in exchange for getting off the terror watch list. This was something that might have occurred anyway because of the transition in Sudan's government. But again, not tied to the Palestinian issue. So I don't really see these things as being very closely related. And I think that the press should do a better job of characterizing these agreements appropriately and not positioning them as being peace deals that have to do with the Middle East peace process. John, uh, thank you for the majestic sweep of an answer and looking at the Abrahamic Accords. What we're going to do is we're going to go on to any other business for the next 10 minutes which is a new section which has been prompted by Emma berating me in a back channel, saying that, uh, as always, I've got the news items wrong. So, Emma, there was a news item which you really what did want to focus on instead of the G7 Accords. What was that news item in the UK? Yeah, there was a report this week which has come out, I believe it was first commissioned in 2018. It's taken a really, really long time. There was a murder in 1987. The police investigation, the first one, was utterly and completely bungled, almost certainly deliberately. The second police investigation was bungled, almost certainly deliberately. The third police investigation was bungled, almost certainly deliberately. There were, at some point, some charges made, um, but the case was handled so badly that those charges against the people who may or may not, we will never know, have um, committed this murder, 
were both let off and then able to sue for having been put on trial in the first place. And at every single stage of this, the Metropolitan Police were completely complicit in covering up what was happening and in covering up where both where they had gone wrong and where there were questions being asked about the integrity of their officers. And if you think that the original crime happened in 1987, very, very few people who were senior or even serving officers at that point are still in the Met now. So it's not even about protecting individuals and their careers. It's just institutional corruption. And those aren't my words, those are the words of the report. It's one of the it's the most damning report on the Metropolitan Police since the McPherson report and should have just as wide ranging and important consequences. And the reason I felt that this was far more important than the the G7 is because I don't think anything's going to get done out of the G7. And I think if we don't talk about the Daniel Morgan murder inquiry and the inquiry into and finding of uh, institutional corruption of the Met Police, nothing will get done either. And I think we've got a better chance of getting something done on this case. Do we believe, because of the damning nature of the report, do we actually believe there's going to be the political will to do something about the Met? And can we call to account any of those officers that are probably now retired that were part of covering up the murder of this man? You can't do anything about the officers. You can't retry the trials. The Morgan family have largely accepted that, or as they put it, everyone in South London, every dog on the street in South London knows who killed Daniel Morgan, and that they will never see justice. What does need to happen is a complete change from top to bottom within the Met, because although we're talking about people who may or may not have been part of that corruption um, 30-odd years ago, 39 years ago, I'm trying to work it out, but I can't because I'm an idiot. I was 12 when it happened, to put it that way, and I'm not 12 anymore. There, there were obstructions that have been happening up to the last moment of the report, which is why the report took so long. Cressida Dick, who is now the, the chief of the Met, was part of those obstructions, you know, was an active part of obstructing this inquiry in its work. Um, she should go. Part of the problem is that with the way that policing has been devolved, it's not clear whether Sadiq Khan or Priti Patel has oversight of this, or that, and both of them are kind of washing their hands and sort of saying, no, no, you don't, you handle the hot potato, you handle it to each other, which means, of course, nothing's getting done, and Preston Dick will probably sail on through as always. She shouldn't, and we should, there should be outrage. Uh, there was outrage after the disgraceful treatment of protests after Sarah Everard's murder, there should be three, four, five times the size of protest. You know, if the police exist to enable crime, what's the point of the police? Uh, if the police cover up their own wrongdoing, then you can't trust them. And if you haven't got a law enforcement body that you can trust, what's the point of them? Thank you for that very powerfully said, Emma. Do we have any other business from you, John, Duke and Paul? 
Is there anything you'd like to get off your chest? Is there a new story which you think needs an airing? If not, then we will um, continue with uh, Chris Brandon, maybe talking about uh, the new government in Israel. John, Duke, Paul? No, I mean, I'm, I'm good, and I feel grateful anybody's listened to any of my ramblings at all. So uh, I'll let anybody else have the floor. On that note, then, uh, Chris Brandon, we pulled you up on stage. Well, more to the point, you, you raised your hand, said you wanted to come on stage. Speak your truth, sir. Well, yeah, John really finished the point about normalization versus peace deals. And I yeah, I just want to stress, like, those were all quid pro quos among the ruling classes of those countries and, and the United States. And the only thing I would add is I find it telling that the Biden administration, there's no difference between the Biden administration and the Trump administration when it comes to the, the Abraham Accords or on Israel-Palestine and all the detrimental moves that Trump made in regards to moving the embassy to Jerusalem or recognizing the Golan Heights, or there was never any sign of Biden coming back on that. So you can see that in most of the Middle East issues, the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, there's not really much between them. You know, the United States has spent 30 years in the Middle East and invaded three or four countries and killed a lot of people and caused a lot of destruction. And now it's just time to move on to the new the new enemy, China. And I think that's really fortunate and terrible for the people of that region and terrible for the people of the United States who, since the end of the Cold War, they could have had healthcare, education expanded, things improved in the U.S. And instead, the ruling class took a different path. And during that same period, look at all the improvements that have been made in, in China and how they've gone from being a third world nation to, I don't know what you would classify them as now, but maybe a middle income nation. And so I have a big thing to open up here. I know maybe there's not enough time, but I would just like to hear like, why, why do people in this IR community, why do they consider China as an adversary or a competitor to the United States and, and the West? And what is the West and the United States vision for the future? Because I I see a vision for the future in, in China, but I don't see that from the West or the United States. Okay, before we move on to that as, as an answer, uh, what I did appreciate, though, is that you made a distinction, that there was a lack of a distinction, let's say, between the Trump administration and the Biden administration in terms of the actual substantive policies vis-a-vis Israel and Biden, uh, the Trump administration recognising that Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. Now, here's a question. I'm going to throw this out to you, Duke. What is more significant, the fact that the Biden administration is just continuing with that policy, they've not rolled it back, or is it more significant that moderate Arab countries did not jump up in arms with that move by the, the Trump administration? And and actually what we have seen with the Abrahamic Accords, isn't it, is a bilateral kind of quid pro quo and Morocco recognizing Israel, et cetera, et cetera. So this is not such a big issue, but a lot of us thought that it was. So which is actually more important, the fact that the Arab world, some elements of the Arab world, fine with this, or at least have just shrugged their shoulders, or is it that the Biden administration is really just following through with uh, with the Trump administration's uh, kind of policies vis-a-vis Israel? 
I think it's a more interesting proposition that the Arab world is shrugging their shoulders. It's not entirely surprising President Biden's stance considering, you know, current attitude of the American electorate. It's not something that seems abnormal to me. Amnon? I heard someone asking, I think, Arjun, about uh, uh, Bibi Netanyahu in eight years, okay? You know how old we will, will he be? I believe Tell he'll us. be 71 today. He's going to be 80, yeah, 80. So uh, I think if he, if he will be able to go back, it will be for another six, seven years. I don't see him more than that. There's also in his party... Uh, lots of people who are now uh, eager to to uh, take his place. And about the accords, uh, John, I, all, all the things you said are uh, exactly as I thought. We should understand that the peace process with UAE is a Western peace process, peace process of a high-tech peace process based on uh, economical interests, Based on a, a successful, no one really, really care in Bahrain and UAE about the Palestinians. Uh, uh, it's not in their mind at all. Hopefully you have enjoyed our debate this week where we talked about uh, Biden being in Europe, Boris Johnson being the genial host. And we've also looked at uh, Israel's new uh, government and what it says about the geopolitics between the US and Israel, but probably more importantly, between um, Israel and the Palestinians. Are we moving closer? Have we moved any closer to resolution of that conflict? Only time will tell. We now record these shows on Clubhouse. Clubhouse is the new social media platform whereby you can get on to this show. Uh, quite simply, download Clubhouse, get onto it. And then we record these every Thursday so you can be in the audience and maybe hold your hand up and ask us a question. Don't forget, folks, left and centre politics is right thinking politics. We'll see you all again in approximately seven days time where we'll look at more news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. Bye bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.